Greetings, this is Kevin Saunders of the Arizona Bible Class, and it's time again for the gospel to come to life. Each week I offer you my reflections on the gospel reading for the coming weekend liturgies. I draw on my extensive background knowledge of the history, the geography, the custom and culture of the Middle East as those elements help inform the gospel text. Today, we'll be looking at a very brief gospel found only in the gospel of John, and I'll walk us into the gospel passage and make a very important point for you to consider before this reflection comes to an end. Each of these reflections usually lasts about half an hour, and I offer them to you so that when you attend liturgy, uh, the priest or the deacon who preaches on the message of the gospel can preach a word into your heart based on the knowledge that you've already gleaned from listening to this podcast. If you have questions and would like to address me through email, the email address for The Gospel Comes to Life is gospelcomestolife at gmail.com. Well, Let's get started. The gospel passage that we're going to look at in great detail is found in John chapter 3. This particular chapter, unique to the gospel of John, remembers an encounter that Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus and then offers a theological reflection, which is the content of our gospel passage today. You'll see how that all comes together in just a moment. But we would do the gospel reading, which is John chapter 3, verses 16, 17, and 18. A grave disservice if we didn't lead in with this engagement that Jesus had in an evening time with this man named Nicodemus. First of all, I want to emancipate Nicodemus from anyone that's ever told you that he is a coward or a fright fellow for coming to Jesus at night. Some have imagined that he would be afraid to be seen uh, with Jesus in public and therefore under the cloak of darkness made his way to the Lord. Nothing could be farther from the truth. In point of fact, Nicodemus is a believer, someone who recognizes in Jesus Messiah-like qualities. And Jesus is going to reveal himself to Nicodemus as the Messiah. You'll see how in just a moment. And additionally, the fact that Nicodemus arrives at night, probably near the Garden of Gethsemane, that olive grove on the west-facing slopes of the Mount of Olives that Galileans were very fond of camping under during the religious pilgrimage feasts, a man like Nicodemus makes his way to Jesus because he knows that is his temporary headquarters, and, here's the key, is granted an audience. He is brought in to the presence of Jesus, and he has an opportunity to converse with him, knowing that in public on a daily basis, the thousands that surround Jesus and press upon him, not only to hear his teaching, but also to experience aspects of his healing ministry, would not cease and desist so they could have a prolonged theological discussion. Jesus honors Nicodemus for coming at night by granting him 
this opportunity for extended theological engagement. Jesus welcomes Nicodemus, and Nicodemus comes seeking the Lord to ask him these questions, which Jesus is only too happy to allow. So, again, Nicodemus, a man emancipated now from having been a a coward or somehow frightful, and that's why he's coming at night. So, the story opens in John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, meaning a Jewish religious leader. By the way, Jesus is a Pharisee. By Pharisee, John, the youngest apostle, our gospel author, means this is a Jewish person of faith who is pharisaical in the way they relate to the tradition. Broadly stated, if you are pharisaical, it means that you believe in holiness at home around, let's say, the kitchen table that trickles up to expressions of worship at the temple. If you are of the Sadducean party, one out of ten Jewish religious leaders called themselves Sadducees. They were in charge of the temple and its sacrificial system and were among the elites and the aristocrats of the day. You held more to a temple-centric view of faith and then a trickle-down theology from the temple worship and sacrificial experience. So, the table of the family up to the temple, Pharisee. The temple and its practices trickle down to the table of the family, Sadducee. And Nicodemus, like Jesus, shares the same theological outlook. The home is where faith is grown. So, he, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, a Jewish religious leader of significant import. He came to Jesus at night, because this is the best time to have a prolonged, engaged conversation with Jesus, and said to him, Rabbi, by that name, acknowledging you are now my teacher, which again is an honored title of esteem in the Middle Eastern world, we, meaning myself and others, perhaps Joseph of Arimathea, who will appear in the gospel account of Jesus's death and burial. It will be into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea that Jesus will be placed, and Nicodemus will be in his company. We, Nicodemus and others, know that you are a teacher, a rabbi, who has come from God, for no one can do the things that you are doing unless God is with them. And again, they have come to the relative conclusion that when Messiah comes, if it's not Jesus, will whoever it is really do more than what this man has already done? Now Jesus receives him, hears these words of honor, and responds to Nicodemus, saying, Amen, Amen, which is a way of saying in our translatable, transliterated English, you can take this to the bank. I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God as you're beginning to see, Nicodemus, without being born again or without being born from above. The term born again is an English translation of the Greek text of the Gospel of John. It can easily be translated as well, born from above, because we're using a Catholic translation. Uh, the preferred 
translation is born from above, but born again also works synonymously. Now Nicodemus takes the bait. He wants to hear more. He's going to offer Jesus a chance to expound. Much like a reporter might ask a question, not satisfied with the answer, would say, would you like to add to that? Well, the way you do that in this kind of an exchange is by asking another question. You're the student. Jesus is the teacher. So Nicodemus, intrigued and wanting to know more, says to Jesus, how can a person once grown old be born again? Surely he cannot re-enter his mother's womb and be born again, can he? Do you think for an instant that Nicodemus imagines that's possible? Absolutely not. But he's throwing a nice soft pitch over the center of the plate to allow Jesus to knock it out of the park. But he wants to know more. What do you mean by being born again? And by the illusion that I, Nicodemus, thinking to himself, have begun to be born again from above. And Jesus responds in verse 5. Amen, amen. You can take this to the bank. I say to you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. There are two kinds of births. Each of them are miraculous. The normal physical birth that we've all experienced through the breaking of the waters of the womb and we enter the world, right? It's not a reference to baptism. It's a reference to the natural birth process. And then another way of being born, that is, uh, through the Spirit. So no one can enter the kingdom of God, as Nicodemus has begun to do, without being born of water first and of the Spirit. What is born of flesh is flesh, and what is born of spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed, Jesus says, that I told you, you must be born from above. Or, don't be amazed that I told you, you must be born again. Now, it's interesting, in the Greek text, the word that we translate as you, and in the singular, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, can also be translated as a plural. So, it could also be translated, do not be amazed that I told you that you all must be born again. That means anyone who's coming to faith in me and beginning to wonder if I'm the Messiah is already beginning the birthing process. Now, it's a different kind of birth. We understand that. And there's a pause between the end of verse 5, I'm sorry, the end of verse 7, and the opening of verse 8. And this is why I'm convinced that they are in the olive grove of Gethsemane. Again, remember, at any pilgrimage festival, tens of thousands of Galileans gathered there. That's why Judas knew where to find Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane on the night he betrayed him and brought the party to arrest him. Jesus was a well-known Galilean, and that's why the party that came to arrest him were on edge, wondering if his followers would defend him, and if events turned violent, they had to be ready uh, for a proper response. So imagining that they're in an outside setting, and there's a pause at the end of verse 7, we can also imagine that the breezes, which collectively blow from west to east every single day across the heights of Jerusalem, beginning at about 
3 p.m. and subsiding about 3 a.m., rustle the leaves of the olive trees above them. You hear the sound. You, you feel the breeze. It's, it's quite refreshing because the breezes are drawn off the Mediterranean. So they're, they're moisture laden and, uh, and, and cooling at the same time. And so Jesus is going to use this opportunity to give image to what he's trying to convey to Nicodemus. In verse 8, they experience what I just suggested to you. And Jesus says, the wind. Now there's a perfect example. The wind blows where it wills, and you can hear the sound it makes as it rustles through the olive branches above, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going to go. All you know is that it originates in the west and blows to the east, but where its source is located, where it will dissipate, you have no possibility of knowing. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. When it happens, you know. How it began, a mystery. Where it will end, just as mysterious. But in the process of being born, you can feel, you can hear, you can sense that something new is coming into your life. Now, Nicodemus wants to know more. He's not confused. He's not a dullard. He is an interested student, and interested students always ask questions, right? So that the master, the rabbi, the teacher can answer the question. And Nicodemus does exactly that. He responds, how can this happen? What do you mean? I've never heard a teaching like this before. And Jesus responds. He answers and says to him, so you are the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand this? This is a tongue-in-cheek little jab at Nicodemus, honoring and recognizing the role that Nicodemus has as a ruler of the Jews. He's not a political leader. He's not an elected official. He's a teacher, a teacher who knows the Word of God and, and, and explicates the Word of God, explains the Word of God to people in the synagogue. And so he says, well, you really should be up to speed on this. How is it you are a teacher of Israel and you don't understand this? It would be rather like someone saying to me, really, Kevin, you didn't know that there was a gospel of John in the New Testament? That sort of thing, a little jab at me. You know, of course I know there's a gospel of John. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you should really already understand what I'm talking about. And so again, in verse 11, amen, amen, you can take this to the bank, amen, amen, yes, yes, or in some translations, truly, truly, I speak truthfully to you. I'm not going to deceive you. I'm, I'm, I'm not telling you a lie. I say to you in verse 11, we, now listen to that word, we, you and I, Nicodemus, speak of what we know. He's just placed Nicodemus on par with himself as regards the both of them being teachers in Israel. We, you and I, we testify, we speak publicly to what we know and to what we have seen, but you people do not accept our testimony. Now here you can hear, as I read those words, the difficulty of translating a language, Greek, into 
English. Because you have to stop and pause and realize Jesus says, Amen, Amen, verse 11, I say to you, we, you and I, speak of what we, you and I, know, and what we, you and I, have seen. But you people do not accept our testimony. He wouldn't say you people. He's saying to Nicodemus, but your people do not accept our testimony. That is, you're their teacher. I'm their teacher. You're coming on board. I'm the rabbi. And I get it. It's frustrating that your people aren't picking up on the message. You see the distinction when you slow down and imagine this exchange. So, he goes on to say in verse 12, If I speak to you about earthly things, and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? He's already honored Nicodemus as a believer, right? In the sense that he says, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. He means Nicodemus and himself. So again, in verse 12, if I tell your people, you see, the people that look to you as their spiritual leader about earthly things, and your people do not believe, this is a frustrating reality, how will your people believe if I tell your people about heavenly things? They're not ready yet. They're not ready yet, but, now watch this, oh, so awesome. Nicodemus, you are, you are ready now for a revelation that will change the course of your life, and in fact, will change the course of human history. So he goes on to say, in verse 13, no one, Nicodemus, has gone up to heaven except the one who has come down from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, as soon as Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, Nicodemus knows that he is claiming that he is the Messiah. Because by the time of the New Testament era, the three words, Son of Man, which in the prophet Ezekiel simply meant a male human being, had become one of the many titles that would be associated with the Messiah. And this is, of course, because... In the book of the prophet Daniel, Daniel has a very famous vision in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. As the visions during the night that I was having continued, watch now, I saw coming with the clouds of heaven, which is a portent of a vehicle that's going to take someone from somewhere else into heaven's throne, one like a son of man, which in the vision of Daniel, meant that he saw a male figure riding a cloud into the throne of God. When he reached the Ancient of Days, that's God, and was presented before him, I watched as he received dominion, splendor, and kingship. All nations and peoples and tongues will serve him. His dominion, I realized in my vision, is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away his kingdom one that will never be destroyed. So he's no earthly figure. He is a king who will have an eternal reign over an eternal kingdom. And from that point on, that passage began to be associated with the vision Daniel had of Jesus, the Messiah. Right? So if 
Jesus now reveals himself to Nicodemus as the Son of Man. He's not revealing himself as just a man. He's saying, I am the Messiah. And you are blessed to be here tonight and have been prepared for this moment and can now receive this revelation. And then in verse 14, he goes on, that is Jesus to say, and just as in the book of Numbers chapter 21, Moses lifted up the poisonous, deadly serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. There is no possible way that Nicodemus didn't pick up on what Jesus meant when he said, lift it up. Because Nicodemus would remember with clarity the Numbers chapter 21 verse 9 story of poisonous serpents as a plague killing Israelites by the thousands until a bronze serpent was crafted and lifted up off the earth, uh, placed on a pole. And when you looked at the death-dealing serpent, you were healed. You, you moved from death to life. You conquered death, if you will. And that bronze serpent had to be lifted up off the earth. And so Nicodemus would make the connection very quickly that Jesus here is claiming to be the Messiah, calling himself the Son of Man. That's an appropriated title. And he's saying that the Son of Man will have to be lifted up, which is, again, a fulfillment of another part of a prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. And again, I don't have time to read and comment on all of Daniel chapter 9, but one of the things about Daniel chapter 9 is the surprise that in verse 26, after a series of years have been predicted over the next 500, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, after 62 weeks of years, an anointed one, or the anointed one, shall be cut down with no one to help him. The prediction of the appearance of the Messiah in Daniel chapter 9 is the most accurate prediction in all of the prophetic texts. And one day we'll look at it in great detail. You can, you can almost arrive uh, at the site of Golgotha based on this predictive prophecy. But part of the prophecy is also that when the Messiah appears after the long, torturous wait, he will be cut off and will have nothing. And that's what Jesus is talking about. In John chapter 3, in verse 14, And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so that the son, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life, just as everyone in Numbers chapter 21, verse 9, who believed Moses viewed the serpent that was bringing death and was spared death. So too, everyone who believes in Jesus will have eternal life. Now that is the end of the discussion that evening. The gospel, though, for our coming weekend is contained in the next three verses. And I want to show you now that the next three verses are not the words of Jesus. They are the words of John, the apostle and fourth evangelist, who's writing his gospel probably in the middle 80s, early 90s maybe, A.D. 
long after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have been written and have been widely distributed. So John has the blessing of taking literary license and including not only stories in his Gospel, like what I've just shared with you, the engagement of Jesus with Nicodemus, but also theological reflection. And that's what our Gospel is today. The Gospel reading begins in verse 16, which is John, the Gospel author's way of saying, now that we've been working at this building of the kingdom of God for the better part of, let's say, 50 plus years, I now with certainty am convinced that God sent his son into the world to save it, not to condemn it. Now, before I show you where John takes us with this gospel passage, I want to remind you of another passage in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 47, is uh, again a part of the Gospel of John that we didn't know about if we only had Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In John chapter 12, verses 44 and following, Jesus cries out in a loud voice and says, whoever believes in me believes not only in me, but also in the one who sent me obviously God the Father, and whoever sees me, sees the one who sent me. I came into the world as light. By the way, John's gospel begins with the words, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And in Genesis chapter 1, the first word God speaks is the word light, right? So you hear the connection between John's gospel and the book of Genesis. So I came, verse 46 of John 12, into the world as light, so that everyone who believes in me might not remain in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not observe them, does not keep them, I do not condemn him. For I did not come to condemn the world, but rather to save the world. Now, Jesus speaks those words during Holy Week in advance of his suffering, death, burial, and resurrection. This is at the height of his powers when he's doing his best teaching on the Temple Mount. And, and there, John remembers, he said, I didn't come into the world to condemn it. I came into the world to save it. But not everyone picked up on that message. And 50 years into the early Christian church experience, it appears that some believers felt that the whole purpose of the revelation of Jesus as God's promised Messiah and Savior was to condemn the world. But, but no, the world is, is God's evangelistic masterpiece. The field is ripe for the harvesting. And Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 47, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save it. Now, remember that now, 60, let's say, years after Jesus speaks those words, John is writing his gospel. And he records and remembers this engagement with Nicodemus, whom we have, uh, well, emancipated from the status of being some sort of a coward who only comes to Jesus because he's afraid to be seen with him in the bright light of day. And after that theological exchange, John reminds his church that God Here's the gospel. So loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him 
might not perish, but have eternal life. And here it comes in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but rather that the world might be saved through him. That's exactly what Jesus taught in John chapter 12, verse 47. And John is reminding his church in Asia Minor, modern central Turkey, ancient Ephesus, of this most important fact. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but rather so that the world might be saved through him. And the gospel ends. For whoever believes in him will not be condemned. But whoever does not believe has already been condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Which means that the witness, that the evidence of who Jesus is based on what he says and what he does or what he said and what he did is so overwhelming that if you reject that, then your fate is your own. The understanding would be, of course, that you've had presented the gospel in its purest, most clear form with signs and wonders that are meant to draw you closer so that you can hear the teaching that is preceded by the preaching. Remember the ministry of Jesus, that, that model that is so effective, healing, drawing crowds that are then preached to, they're inspired so that they can then be taught, you see. And, and if that's done well, then it's on you because you had the opportunity, the grace available to respond. Now, our gospel ends there, but not this literary and theological aside of the apostles. That continues in verse 19 and 20 and 21. And this is the verdict. Here it comes. That light came into the world, Jesus. But people prefer darkness to light because their works were evil. But the light was there. And the light dispels the darkness. The, the darkness flees from the light. You turn on a light, where does the darkness go? You light a candle, where did that darkness go? For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come toward the light so that his works might not be exposed. They're running away from the light. They, they've condemned themselves. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. He sent his son into the world as a light to attract the world to him. But some choose not to. But whoever lives in the truth, you and I, we come to the light so that his works may be clearly seen as done in God. We're not afraid of the bright light of day, the bright light of the Spirit, right? Light is Jesus. Jesus is light. And this engagement with Nicodemus starts the mind of John and his theological considerations that are revealed in our gospel. By the way, and I'll say this in conclusion, this was never clear to me because my first Bible that I ever read through 40 plus years ago was a red letter edition. You may be familiar with a red letter edition Bible. In a red letter edition Bible, editors imagine that whatever words we attribute to Jesus in the gospels, will be in red as opposed to black on the white page. Well, in the red letter Bible I had, John chapter 3, verses 16 to 21, were all in red letters. So I just assumed that Jesus spoke those words because that 
is what my Bible told me. It was only through scholarship and careful examination that I realized that was an editorial decision made by well-intentioned scholars, but it wasn't accurate. John wants his community to remember that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life because God didn't send his son into the world, nor is Jesus in our world today to condemn it, but rather that the world might be saved through him because he is light and light attracts people. Huh? Light attracts people. So keep that in mind. That's a takeaway. We need to be the light, not of the world, as so much as the light in the world. So others will be attracted and we can share our faith in response. Now, for this teacher, that's all I've got time to do. I thank you for listening and pray you are well. I look forward to the next reflection. Never forget what a great student you are. Goodbye and God bless.